series of messages this morning uh, focused on great stories from God's Word. And as we move through these coming months, we're going to alternate some between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some of the sermons will be more conceptual like they are today. Others will be more character-based, but one theme is going to be consistent through them all. God is the hero. God is the supreme focus. Sometimes when we hear Old Testament narrative stories, especially the character themselves is lifted up and that becomes the story, but that's really not the ultimate account. It's about God's faithfulness and what he does through us when we respond to him in faith and obedience. So I'm looking forward to this and we'll see how far it takes us, but we'll at least make it through the fall season and into the end of the year. We'll be having some breaks here and there for special days and uh, some other emphases as we approach the holidays especially, but I am excited about this new focus of messages. It's a little bit different than what I normally do. For those of you who've been around a while, you know that the bread and butter is typically taking a book of the Bible and introducing it and going all the way through it because God's Word is to be taught uh, in its entirety, and we have the responsibility to teach the whole counsel of God, and I think the most direct way to do that and a faithful way to do that is by preaching through the scripture as it is presented. So the messages will be similar in that regard, but they'll be different in the fact that we'll be looking at some different sections of the scripture and giving us some variety as we go along. So today, instead of looking at the last verse in the last chapter in the last book of the Bible, we're going to begin in the first verse in the first chapter in the first book of the Bible. So if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 1, I'll be there in just a moment. We'll consider the entirety of the chapter all the way through chapter 2 and verse 4. And my message is entitled, The Beginning, Why It Matters. The Beginning, Why It Matters. There's an astronomer by the name of Dr. Peter Edwards from Durham University who explained the size in the immensity of the universe in this way. He said, you will never ever get your head around how big the universe is. It is just enormous. There is no way, I think, that the human mind can comprehend the true immensity of the universe. We are happy with the size of an elephant or the size of a tree or maybe even the size of a cathedral. But if we go beyond that, our brains just start to run out of gas. We pointed the Hubble telescope at what appeared to be a very ordinary patch of the night sky. If you imagine holding up your finger with a grain of sand on it and looking at the patch of sky, that grain of sand blocks out. That's the field that the Hubble telescope zoomed into. What the telescope saw was incredible. There are 10,000 galaxies in a patch of sky the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length. If this tiny patch of sky is like every other, then we can calculate how many galaxies there are out there. The visible universe contains around 100 billion galaxies. Each one of those galaxies contains around 100 billion stars. That means the visible universe contains something like 10,000 million, million, million stars. That means there are more stars in the visible universe then there are grains of sand on the earth. Where did the universe come from? This is the question before us today as we consider the beginning of all things and why it matters. 
What is the application of this for the Christian faith? How do we understand that? And how does that form our view of the Bible, our worldview as a whole, as we live our lives, and even into eternity? Now, as we approach this passage, I want to point to several truths that I affirm and that we affirm collectively as a church. Genesis 1 through 11 is literal truth that is asserted and not argued in the text, meaning that it is presented in such a way that it is truth delivered to us so that we can understand origins and we can understand the first cause and we can understand who God is from the outset. We also believe that God is eternal and there was never a time when he was not. I'll come back to that in just a few moments. God created out of nothing, ex nihilo, all that exists by the power of his word. Now, human beings are incredibly talented and they can take materials that have already been in existence and they can do some beautiful things with them, whether, whether it be in architecture or art or some other area of life. But there is no human being who can create something out of nothing. We have to have something to start with, and yet God created all that exists out of nothing. The account of God and creation is the foundation of the entire Bible. And I'm going to make a bold and direct statement that could be the most important statement that I make in this message. So I want you to listen carefully. If the Bible is not reliable concerning creation, then the Bible is not reliable concerning salvation. Let me say it again. If the Bible is not reliable concerning creation, then the Bible is not reliable concerning salvation. If the foundation is compromised, the building cannot stand. The Bible is reliable concerning creation, and it is reliable concerning salvation. Or we might think about it another way. The path between Genesis 1 and verse 1, John 3 and verse 16, and Revelation 22 and verse 21 is intricately connected and directly interdependent. There's the thread that runs through the entirety of the Bible of who God is, what God has done, how God redeems a people to himself, and what God will do for eternity. And if we strip any of those essentials from that thread, then the whole thing is compromised. So let us hear from the Word of God and let the Word of God speak, beginning in Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was an evening and there was a morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning, the second day. 
Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. There will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, let the water swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl in the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. Verse 27, he created him in the image of God. And then perhaps one of the most important verses for our day is the last part of verse 27, which says very plainly, he created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I've given every green plant for food and it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed, chapter 2 and verse 1. Verse 2, on the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And then he goes on to give some more intricate detail of that creation. I want us to think for just a moment 
about the language of Scripture in its plainest, most direct, clearest way of reading. If we do so and we simply read the Scripture and we accept it on faith, then the language of Scripture makes it evident that creation was spoken into being by God out of nothing in six days with no apparent time gaps in between. This is evidenced by a normal common sense reading. There was evening and there was morning. And then each sentence builds on the other as it progresses through the creation account. So by way of summary, on day one, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens refer to everything that is beyond the earth. God spoke light into being, and he separated light from the dark, and he named the light day and the dark night. Day two of creation, God created the atmosphere, and the sky forms a barrier between water on the surface and moisture in the air, and earth had an atmosphere. Day three of creation, God created dry land, and the seas were gathered together, and the continents and the islands were above the water, and God created the grass and the trees and all plant life, both large and small. Day four of creation, God created the stars with two great heavenly bodies that were made in relation to the earth. The first being the sun, which is the primary source of light, and the second being the moon, which reflects the light of the sun, and the movements of these bodies distinguish the day and the night. Day five of creation, God created all life that lives in the water. Any kind of life that lives in the water was made at this point. God also made the birds. Day six of creation, God created the land animals that live on the dry land, and this included every type of creature that had not been created on the previous days. And as his crowning creation, man was created in the image of God and is special above all of God's creation. And God placed man in authority over the earth, and he blessed him and told him to reproduce and fill the earth and to subdue it and to rule over it. So God's creative work ended on the sixth day, having spoken all of creation into being, and the entire universe and all of its beauty and perfection was full and complete by the word of God. Then on day seven, God rested. Not because God was tired or weary, but he rested as a principle for all of creation. And he implemented that later on in the law, and it uh, continues to be a moral principle from the law that we were not intended to work seven days a week, 24 hours a day. We were created with rhythms of life where we are to pull back one day a week to worship God and to rest and to focus on his glory. So creation itself is very important. And I understand that we could dig down in the details of this and we could spend uh, the remainder of this year and most of the next just talking about the specificity of the creation. But that is not the approach that I want to take here. Instead, what I want to do is I want us to focus on a higher level and look at the creation itself, but learn what the creation teaches us about the creator himself. And let's think about how the creation points us to a creator who is worthy of worship and he's worthy of our faithfulness. So what can we learn from creation about the creator? First, creation proclaims the existence of God. Creation proclaims the existence of God. Look again in verse 1 in chapter 1, in the beginning, God. It's just an assertion that God is there. 
and it speaks to us some things about God and some things about the universe that we live in. We would say, rightly, that the universe as we know it has not always existed. The beginning here refers to a specific point in time. And while the universe as we know it has not always existed, there was never a time when God the Father did not exist. In the beginning, God. He was already there. He's the first cause. He is the eternal God over all. And he is existing because he is self-existent. He is independent. He is eternal. The word that is used for God here in the Hebrew is Elohim. Elohim, speaking to the strength and the power of God. And God, by that strength and power, created the heavens and the earth. So we might say that God willed it into being by the power of his word, so that God produced something out of nothing. The condition of the universe at that time, or what was in existence as as it were, is seen in the first part of verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And yet God brought up a creation out of that in all of its beauty that we now enjoy. It's also important to note that not only was there not a time when God the Father did not exist, there has never been a time when God the Holy Spirit did not exist. So right here in the opening pages of the Bible, we are brought to an understanding of the triune God. God who is co-equal and co-eternal, who exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, eternally so, one in essence and three in person. In the beginning, God. And then we see in the second part of verse 2 that the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And we also know that there was never a time when God the Son did not exist. When John presents his gospel in chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, In the, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The New Testament clearly focuses in on Jesus as the agent of creation. The hymn of praise in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 and 16 says, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Not speaking of his beginning, but speaking of his preeminence. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. We know what we know about God because God is a self-revealing God. We know what we know about God because God has shown himself to us. And the proclamation of creation serves for us as God's general revelation. So Paul wrote this in Romans 1 and verse 20. He said, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. So the scripture is telling us that the the attributes of God are on display in the creation of God, and the general revelation of God is a proclamation of his existence. And our understanding of that general revelation is enough to condemn, but it's not enough to convert. Otherwise, we would be universal creationists who believe that if people see the beauty in the world, then they're going to be redeemed. And that's not what the Bible teaches. 
So the proclamation of creation is God's general revelation, but the proclamation of Scripture is God's special revelation. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped and complete for every good work. Oh, but then the proclamation of Jesus, the Son of God, is the preeminent revelation. Hebrews 1 in verse 1 says, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. Now, we're all well aware in the modern educational system that we have been brought up in that Charles Darwin's theory of evolution dominates modern education and the worldview of modernity, or even post-modernity, which most believe that we are now in. It is the supposed explanation of how creatures have evolved and developed progressively through natural selection and variation and mutation over eons of time from a tiny cell to the largest creatures on earth today. So what is presented as settled fact contradicting the Bible is not microevolution because we all would see the validity of microevolution in the sense that God gives species the ability to adapt and to adjust and to develop. But what is presented and is on the table is macroevolution, which is speaking from species to species. And evolution is so negatively influential because it serves the agenda of atheists. And here's the reason. If there is no God, then there is no accountability. See, this works really well. If you don't believe that there's any God, you believe that this is a closed system that we live in, that when you die, they're going to dig the hole and they're going to put you in it and they're going to put the dirt on and it's going to be over for you, you don't have to worry about the fact of a judgment day. You don't have to worry a whole lot about right and wrong. You don't have to worry about accountability. You don't have to worry about eternity. Because your worldview is telling you that there's no one to whom you will ultimately answer. Evolution, on the other hand, teaches this idea that all we are is all we are. And when it's over, it's going to be over. Which is contradictory to what the Bible teaches. And you say, what's the root problem? Well, Paul identified it. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 25, here it is. This is what has happened. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created rather than the creator who is praised forever. This is the issue. Exchanging the truth for a lie and worshiping the creation rather than the creator. There's no need for a creator because life arose from non-life. Life evolve from simple to complex. An amoeba became a lizard, became a monkey, and then, hey, here we all are in all this complexity. And that's a little bit of a caricature. I get that. But at the same time, it's in line with the way of thinking. Years ago, I visited a place called the Duke Primate Center at Duke University. I was serving in North Carolina and I was there at the Duke Primate Center, and they have the most varied collection of lemurs in the world. And these lemurs are primates. 
The young lady who was teaching the, and presenting the tour that day went through this long and complex explanation about how the lemurs had been the first primates. They were, they were the prototype primates, but yet primates had evolved beyond that to all of this complexity. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I'm going to ask her a question. Now, I'm not going to be a smart aleck about it, but I'm just, just going to ask an obvious question. So I waited for her to go through the whole spiel. And I said, ma'am, could you tell me why they're still lemurs? Do you have any transitional forms? Have you discovered any transitional forms in the world that you can show definitively that a lemur became another type of primate? Now, y'all, I, I am from the country. And I farmed for a living. Uh, and I can tell you that I never saw a chicken be anything but a chicken. I've never seen a cow be anything but a cow, ever. So two issues that are significant obstacles for me of buying into the system that is taught is that very issue of the lack of transitional life forms. And if we were still evolving, would we not be able to evidence significant levels of evidence of transitional life forms even today? And I know there are some isolated things that scientists will try to point to and say, well, here it is. But they lack in substantive convincing evidence. The other thing that has always troubled me in this whole system of thinking is the idea of mutating to greater complexity. I mean, you don't think about a mutation when you say, hey, there was a mutation in that genetic pool. You're not thinking about, oh, well, they evolved to a higher level of complexity. You're thinking about something went wrong. That, that was not a good thing. It's a mutant. There's a reason they call it a mutant. And again, these are issues that we've got to think through more than what we're presented at a surface level. And I went all the way. I, di I didn't grow up in a bubble. I went all the way through the public education system, all the way till I got to my junior year in college. And even when I was in my junior year in college, I went to a liberal arts school with a Methodist heritage. And that school very much bought into the secular way of thinking. I took a class one time. It's the first C that I made in college, and the only reason I made a C is because I struck a bargain. And what happened was I took a philosophy class with a professor that was from the University of Florida. And in this philosophy class, he's presenting all the principles of philosophy, origins, and, and worldview, and all these things that are presented. And on the final exam, he asked this question, to you, and I'm, I'm quoting this verbatim, to you, who is God? Well... I presented to him who I believe God to be from the Bible, from a Christian worldview. I incorporated some of the philosophical principles that he had given in the class, and he promptly gave me an F on the paper. And he shredded that paper. That paper was bleeding when I got it back. It was in those old blue composition books for those of you who went to college about 100 years ago like I did. And he sent it back to him, and I had an F. So I called the professor, and I said, Sir, I'd like to get an explanation here of, of what was wrong with my essay. I said, the question asked to you, who is God? I said, I answered who God is. And he starts going in on this diatribe about what a foolish answer I had given. This man got so angry with me over the phone, he was stuttering to the point that he could not talk. And I said, look, we're not going to agree. I said, I answered the question just because you didn't like my answer doesn't give you the license to fail me in the class. I said, but here's the deal. 
if you will pass me, I need this as a liberal arts credit, and if you will pass me and give me a C in this class, I'll go away and, I, and I'll let it be. And he was so tired of me by the end of that conversation. That's exactly what he did. So listen, what I'm telling you is I've not been raised in a bubble that is not considered these issues. I went all the way through to the higher level of secular education, and none of it weakened my faith. Every step of the way, it strengthened my faith. And even when I got in the circumstance where we were being taught why people attack and deny the scripture itself, that did not weaken my faith either. It further strengthened my faith because of the God that I believe in. And there are also some who have tried in Christian circles to uh, resolve the supposed tension between science and faith by holding to alternative theories. Years ago, the gap theory was introduced, trying to account for uh, apparent age. Uh, things like theistic evolution have become more in vogue these days. And I think that heart of these issues is we don't want to be embarrassed. We want, we want people to think our worldview is plausible. Well, whether or not they think our worldview is plausible is not what makes it plausible. It's whether or not it's true is what makes it plausible. And it brings us to that crisis of faith. And while I don't claim to have all the answers, I do believe that the word of God is true. Now, a thought occurred to me when I was preparing this message as well. I think it's important to note that when Moses received this word from God to write, and I think other than some editorial comments that are interjected in the Pentateuch in the first five books of the Bible, I think Moses is the writer. I think when Moses was given this scripture to record, he wasn't writing to people either who had been isolated from competing religious views. Israel had spent 400 years in captivity in Egypt where they worshiped the sun. They worshiped a pantheon of gods. They were all kinds of confused. And yet Moses presents to them who the eternal God is and who he has always been. So I say to you today, creation proclaims the existence of God. And it does so resoundingly. And then secondly... Creation proclaims the purpose of God. And I'm going to move quickly on these last two points. But I present to you that the purpose of creation is to bring glory to God. The Bible says in Psalm 19 and verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The artistry, the grandeur, the variety of creation, it all points to one thing, and that is the glory of our great God. And the creation of man as the image bearer of God is also reflective of the glory of God. Don't buy into the lie that man is nothing more than an animal among animals. That's the outcome of evolution and naturalism. You're nothing more than a base level animal. You have no more value than any other animal. When in fact, the Bible says that, the, that man was created in the image of God as the preeminent creation of God. And man in the image of God does not refer primarily to his biological form because God is spirit and he's to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. But it refers to the fact that we have an eternal soul. And there's a man by the name of John Randall Short who wrote an article entitled, Plainly Man, the Image of God. And in it, he outlines some characteristics of the image of God that are found in people. One that he referenced is language. How God communicates and 
we're able to communicate because of the fact that we are image bearers. And I know some of y'all, you really love your animals. Hey, I love my animals, but not a one of them's ever talked to me. I mean, because I've said things like 159,000 times, they know when the food's ready. They know when it's time to go outside. They know when it's time to get off the furniture. But none of them have talked back to me. Can God make an animal speak supernaturally? Sure he can. He did it with a donkey. But the normative way of communication is human beings that are able to communicate because we have been created in the image of God with language. And then also the remarkable, remarkable ability of man to use what's been entrusted to him and to make something beautiful out of it, as I referenced earlier, whether it be art or architecture or some other facet of life. And that certainly speaks to the character of God. Love is another one that he referenced in the article. God is love, and we love because he first loved us. Holiness, because God is holy, and he extends to us his righteousness in Christ. We, too, can be holy. What about immortality? Now, there was never a time when God was not. There was a time when I was not. Now, I made my grand entrance into the world on June the 6th of 1971. Now, I know it's very difficult for you to believe I'm that old, but that's when I made my entrance into the world. But as you know, I had my beginning nine months before that when I was conceived in my mother's womb, and God knew me before I even made my entrance into the world. And while I am not eternal in the sense that I, there was a time when I did not exist and there was a time when you did not exist, there will never be a time when we will not exist in the future. Mind blown ever. We all, once we are created, are eternal and immortal in a spiritual sense. And in that regard, we are like God as his image bearers. And then the last thing that he referenced in the article is the freedom of God to do as he pleases. And that was tragically and irreparably changed for us in the fall without the intervention of God. And even so, we are free moral agents in the sense that we have a responsibility to a holy God. So the purpose of creation is to bring glory to God. Think about the most beautiful place you've ever visited. Maybe the Grand Canyon or the Rocky Mountains, or the Pacific Ocean, or maybe the Sumadero Canyon in Mexico, or the clear and blue waters of the Caribbean on the coast of Jamaica, or maybe the New River Gorge in the heart of fall when the colors are most brilliant and most significant, or maybe the most beautiful thing you've ever seen is when you looked into the precious face of a newborn baby that's been created in the image of God. Understand all of these are but glimpses and shadows of the glory of God, which he has faithfully and graciously revealed to us. And God has acted redemptively in creation to bring all things together in Christ. The one who created it is the one who redeems it. The one who redeems it will be the one who consummates it. And in him, our faith is to be focused. Because that's where creation focuses, is on the purpose of God, which is the glory of God. And then the third and final truth I want you to see here is that creation proclaims the goodness of God. Look again in chapter 1, in verse 10. God saw that it was good. 
Verse 12, God saw that it was good. Verse 18, God saw that it was good. Verse 21, God saw that it was good. Verse 25, God saw that it was good. Verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. God is good. Creation proclaims the goodness of God because God is good. Creation is good because it is based on and proclaims the nature and the character and the goodness of God. We cannot separate what is good from God. Or to say it another way, good in terms of righteousness cannot be found without God. And you cannot have God without righteousness and goodness because God alone is good. And here's the beauty of it all. Because he is a good father, he withholds nothing good from his children. It's a promise of scripture. Psalm 84 and verse 11 says, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield and the Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Hey, I understand that presently we're living in a sin fallen world. And sometimes through the fog of life, in the situations that we're dealing with, we might ask ourselves, is God really good? Sometimes we can get down in the depths of our own despair and our own disappointment with life and our own discouragement about the direction that it's going in, and we ask, is God really good? And what we need to understand is that not only is God good, but he has a good purpose for us because he made us. And if he made us with a good purpose, he's going to fulfill that good purpose in us. And when he redeems us in Christ through the precious blood of his son, which is the very best that God had to give, then certainly that must tell us that we have value to God having been created in his image. So we've got to get through the fog. We've got to get through the darkness of despair and discouragement and disappointment. And we have to come back to this fundamental belief that God is good all the time, and you know the rest of it, all the time, God is good. This year as a church, we're focusing on the renewed theme from Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22 to 24. And the heart of that passage says that the mercies of God are new every morning. You say, well, it must have been a particularly blessed time when old Jeremiah wrote that. He must have been enjoying some really happy days when he wrote that to think about how merciful God was. Folks, the book is entitled Lamentations for a reason. Jeremiah wrote it as Jerusalem was destroyed and they were in great distress. And yet he wrote some of the sweetest, most comforting words in all of the Bible. And sometimes we fail to clearly see the mercies of God and we have a hard time seeing it. But to believe in God's goodness is one of the pillars of our faith. And the truth fills us with joy and it gives us confidence even when we don't feel like life is good. And even when we don't understand what God is doing, we can believe that he is good and we can trust him and we can know that he cares. And I close with this verse, the last verse that we read, Genesis chapter two and verse four. And here's what it says, just a plain, again, presentation, straightforward. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation at the time the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, if you were to go pull your birth certificate as a record, or you were to go pull your marriage certificate as a record, or you were to go pull your academic record, and you looked at it, 
you'd take it for what it was. Because it's a record. It's a presentation of what happened in the past. Well, so it is with the Word of God. We take it at face value because it's the Word of God and it is the record of the heavens and the earth. And I return to that important thought that I gave you and I want it to linger in your hearts and your minds this week and as you think through this big concept of creation, if the Bible cannot be trusted and considered reliable in matters of creation, then the Bible cannot be trusted or considered reliable in matters of salvation. And I'll tell you this, and I mean it with all my heart. If I did not believe that the creation record was trustworthy and that the Word of God was compromised, I'd pack it up and I'd go to the house. Because what would be the point? But if you believe it, and you build your life on that foundation, it'll change the entire trajectory and it'll do so eternally. God can be trusted in matters of creation. This is not a tertiary issue for the church. This is a central, core, fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. And if we get it wrong and we think we're so smart that we can impose our worldly wisdom over the wisdom of God, we have delved into foolishness and it will be to our own destruction. It's the bottom line. Let's pray together. Fathers, we bow our hearts and our heads before you. We come to you in faith, recognizing that we don't know all things but we know what we know because you've told us and you can be trusted. And you can be trusted in matters of creation and I thank you that you can be trusted in matters of salvation. That our foundation is solid and our hope is certain because of who you are and what you've done in Christ. Lord, I know there may be some struggling. We, we've been steeped in all this stuff that is absolutely contrary to what Scripture teaches. In some ways, we've been brainwashed by it in this culture. I pray that we would not only see the light of the gospel and, and your glory, but we would see everything that emanates from that, that truth flows from your holy character because you're the God who's faithfully communicated to us. So I pray for those that are struggling. Maybe they're still in the midst of the crisis of faith. There may be some here this morning that didn't believe a word I said. But I pray, Lord, you'd bring to them to the place by the power of your Holy Spirit that they would see you in your glory and be willing to believe and trust in you. So we give this time of close over to you. If there are steps of faith that need to be taken, I pray that people would come. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing, This is My Father's World. And we're going to sing through the first couple of verses here. You come as the Lord leads. Maybe